remembering the late 60s and early 70s, let us say it can sometimes be an effort, especially if you enjoyed what is euphemistically called the purple haze. But drug culture did often involve a serious search for enlightenment, and many people looked to the gurus and the philosophies of Eastern religion. Musicians such as the Beatles were particularly inspired. The story you're about to hear will take you on a trip, a trip, yes, that lasts more than a 100 years from the days of the British Raj in India right through to the giggling guru. You might recognise that figure. That was the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. He set up a colony in the Pacific Northwest of the United States. The British writer Mick Brown is a celebrated music journalist, but he's long had a fascination not only with the religions of the East, but with the way Westerners themselves have sought answers to life's big questions. Mick discusses this quest in his new book, The Nirvana Express, How the Search for Enlightenment Went West. Here's Mick Brown. I'm of a generation that grew up on initially Jack Kerouac, and the Beats, and through the Beats, I suppose, onto, onto people like Alan Watts, who was the first person, first Westerner, certainly, to sort of start talking seriously about uh, Zen Buddhism. So I've always had an interest in Eastern spirituality and pop culture, of course, in the 60s, mid to late 60s, reflects that across the culture, primarily through the Beatles and their engagement with the Maharishi, but also people like Pete Townsend of The Who, who was a devotee of Maya Barber, who was another Indian teacher. You had the hippie trail, people coming from the West, getting in battered old VW combi vans uh, and traveling across through Iran and Afghanistan, which of course you could never do nowadays. So I think there was this, this tremendous voracious appetite, you might say, for, for Eastern spirituality. And I think drugs probably has had a lot to do with that. Drugs awakened a sense in many, many people who were smoking marijuana or taking LSD of a different way of looking at the world. And that seemed to correspond in some ways to Eastern ideas of attaining enlightenment or struggling for enlightenment. I think we should add, we're not saying that Buddhism or, or Hinduism licenses people to use drugs, but yeah, what is the cultural connection? Because it recurs in this rollicking journey, this rollicking book. As I say, I think people started smoking marijuana, and I think that led to a sort of questioning, really, about Western culture and Western society, and a sense that there was something other than the nine-to-five job, conventional behavior, conformist behavior. And at the same time, you had a growing interest in Eastern philosophy, Eastern teaching. I mean, if you look at, say, Aldous Huxley, he actually equates the masculine experience with mystical experiences in the Christian tradition, but particularly in the Eastern tradition. And you're right, no Eastern guru, no Indian guru or Buddhist teacher would have had anything to do with drugs. But in the West, those descriptions of enlightenment or sartori seem to correspond with the sorts of experiences that people in the West, young people in the West, were yearning for. Well, Mick, is your interest in this uh, anything other than journalistic? Uh, have you explored Eastern religion? Well, I've written a couple of books about it. 
I've been to India many, many times, but I didn't go there in the 70s. But I became particularly interested in uh, Tibetan Buddhism. I wrote a book initially called The Spiritual Tourist, which took me on various journeys through India and elsewhere, looking at different teachers. And then I wrote a book called The Dance of 17 Lives about the 17th Karmapa, who was a Tibetan Buddhist teacher. And that was really a, a study of the kind of the politics, I suppose, of reincarnation which is something which I was very interested in and, and, and absolutely fascinated by. Mm. But I'm not a Buddhist practitioner, and I've never lived in an ashram. I've spent times in ashrams writing about them. So I wouldn't say that I was on the hippie trail particularly. <laughs> I, tend to be, I, I tend to be very much a kind of detached observer of things, I'm afraid. Well, I only wonder because your descriptions are very, very vivid, very, very colourful. The Economist just recently gave your book a ray of review, and I noticed that it said this, it is to Mr. Brown's credit that he never stoops to mockery or even gentle irony, despite what must have been considerable temptation. Now, I think that's true. Having read your book cover to cover, you are very respectful of the Eastern religions, Hinduism and Buddhism. But what features of this story might cause uh, people to um, smile wryly, let us say? Well, I think, in a way, there is this, and this has been reflected in, in other reviews, actually, that I've had for the book. There is a kind of dichotomy between the rationalist view and perhaps a more um, open-minded view, you might say, which is prepared to accept mystical experience or the teachings of other religious traditions, to accept those at face value and to have some respect for them. And certainly Buddhism, which I have enormous respect for, which I know much more about than I do about Hindu teachings. You know, it's easy to make jokes. In fact, very interestingly, back in the 1920s, when there was first a sort of growing interest in Eastern philosophy and Eastern religion, there are examples of journals, A.F. Benson writing about a map and Lucia books. This is in 1920, where there's a guru who comes to England and turns out to be a, a cook in an Indian restaurant who is actually a thief. So there's always been this sort of slight mockery, tongue-in-cheek sort of mockery, I think, of, of these things. I'm thinking, though, uh, a little bit of a wry smile directed not at the people who were the gurus, but this modern um, sort of notion, particularly since the 60s and 70s, of the certain type of rather upper-middle-class liberal Westerner who's on the spiritual journey. Well, that's true. I mean, you can have a wry smile at it, but I think in, in many cases, that's a very, very sincere quest, if you like, for I think enlightenment is perhaps pitching a bit too high. I'm not sure I know what enlightenment is, although I've met people who I think are probably enlightened, the Dalai Lama for one. They never discuss being enlightened or give you any sort of insight into what enlightenment is. But I think certainly a quest for kind of self-understanding mm. is a very noble and, and legitimate quest. I should add to that that in the 60s and early 70s on that hippie trail, a lot of people were going there simply get stoned and, and for the sensation of it. And there was, if you read the accounts of Timothy Leary or Allen Ginsberg, when they first uh, get to India, there's very much a kind of, oh, wow, uh, uh, view of Indian sadhus and Indian religious practices. Leary, I'm paraphrasing here, but he, he visits Varanasi and says it's, a, it's like a, a hippie festival that's been going on for a thousand years. I don't think the sadhus and gurus of Varanasi would have seen it that way. Well, look, let's start not at the beginning because we're going to sort of take a trip back in time, but let's start in the mid 20th century with that most famous mm -hmm. group of artists, the Beatles. You 
referred to them. To what extent did the Beatles personify a Western fascination with this search for enlightenment through the religions of India in particular? They really set the template for it. And it's, it's quite interesting to see the, how that came about. First of all, through George Harrison, I think, was the, was the sort of the prime instigator of that, who had an interest in Indian music and, and met Ravi Shankar, played the sitar. The sitar appeared on uh, early Beatles records, 1964, 65 records. And that was then taken up by a whole range of pop groups. Suddenly you heard sitars everywhere on pop records. And the sitar became a sort of shorthand for something exotic and Indian and otherworldly. Harrison, of course, was much more serious about that. The other key figure in this is John Lennon, and this mm-hmm. goes to what I was saying earlier about the drug connection. Lennon had a particular enthusiasm for LSD. He read Timothy Leary's book, The Politics of Ecstasy, which in turn is a book based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead, ancient Tibetan text, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. It was after reading that that, that Lennon wrote Tomorrow Never Knows, which is, if you like, the most psychedelic of the Beatles songs. So when the Maharishi then arrives in London to give a talk at the Hilton Hotel, all of the Beatles go along as one, and they immediately start wearing white sort of uh, clothes and, and bedecking themselves with flowers and, and, and necklaces. And the following year, they go off to Rishikesh. And so by that point, they are the most famous group, bar none, in the world, the most famous performing artists. And, and inevitably, that focuses all of the attention on them and the Maharishi. And I think that's an enormous catalyst for this widespread interest that then grew up in, into transcendental meditation, into all the Eastern teachings. Well, when they do go to that uh, ashram, I think it is, that is uh, run by the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, it's a very productive mm-hmm. time for them, isn't it? Um, I think it's very productive in, in one particular album. That's right. They're there for a number of weeks, although some leave earlier than others. Ringo Starr's only there for two or three weeks. I don't think he particularly got on with India meditation or Indian food. So he and his wife left quite early. But yes, I mean, there's a lot of songwriting that goes on there in between their sort of rather intensive meditation sessions. Yeah, didn't they write uh, half of half of the White Album or something? Half of the White Album was written in um, there? Yeah, not quite half, but there was certainly a, a large number of songs that subsequently appeared on the White Album. And it's kind of ironic, and I think it says a lot about this sort of enormous duality of the 60s, really, that those are songs that are written in this atmosphere of peace and love and tranquility. But it's precisely those songs like Helter Skelter that are taken up a year or so later by Charles Manson Mm. in America as a sort of soundtrack, perverse soundtrack, if you like, for his murder sprees, which is a very odd picture of the 60s that I, I think you get from that coincidence of things. But at the same time, going to the ashram, I think, was a disappointment, certainly for John Lennon and for Paul McCartney. And they came away very disillusioned with the Maharishi. George Harrison, of course, stuck with it, if you like, and remained very, very interested and very concerted on Eastern teachings, but not so Lennon and McCartney. So I think that was a, I don't want to call it a flash in the pan, but it was certainly a momentary enthusiasm for most of it. Well, I think, Mick, uh, in the case of uh, George Harrison, wasn't his, uh, I think, most famous uh, solo, My Sweet Lord, People are listening to this, and I think at some point he invokes the Hare Krishna, if I recall that song correctly. 
Very much so, yes. Well, also at that time, the other movement that's growing up in the West is, of course, the Hare Krishna movement, which actually begins in New York. A, a former chemist that comes to New York and founds this movement. That begins to mushroom, grows enormously in America, and then, then comes to Britain. And Harrison became very interested in that. And when some people from the Hare Krishna movement came to the UK, he sort of looked after them, then incorporated that chant, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, into the song, My Sweet Lord. Mm. So his interest in all of this continued for a number of years. I mean, the, the Maharishi Mahesh had a party called the Natural Law Party. I don't want to call it a political party, although I suppose that's what it was. And uh, George Harrison was, was a supporter of that, gave a benefit concert in London for that. He alone stuck with it, I think. But then, like all things, all things must pass, as one of the songs on that album says. Mm. So I think the collective interest in Eastern religion began to dissipate through the 70s to a large extent. This is the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West with you. We are chatting with Mick Brown. Mick is the author of a really illuminating book, The Nirvana Express, How the Search for Enlightenment Went West. Mick, let's go back now to the 19th century. The British are in India and on the subcontinent. I've always found it mm -hmm. interesting that the British never actually tried to convert the people of India to Christianity. What was the fascination that those British uh, colonialists developed with Indian religion? That's a very interesting point. If we go back, the reason that the first British colonization of India happened was purely commercial. You know, the East India Company were looking to exploit the resources of India and take control of it. And for a while, in fact, the East India Company actually forbade missionaries going to India mm -hmm. because they thought that would be a distraction from the main business. But there were very enlightened people within the East India Company, notably William Jones, who went to India at that time and became very, very interested in the culture and religion of the country. William Jones founded something called the Asiatic Society, which was devoted to cultivating a, a learning and an understanding and appreciation of Indian culture and in particular Indian religion. It was a writer, as they were called, a clerk or a writer for the East India Company, who was the first person to do an English translation of the Bhagavad Gita. And that sort of then spread throughout Europe. In that sense, they were, as I say, very enlightened people, notably for the East India Company, discovering the sort of archaeological origins of Buddhism, who were learning Sanskrit, understanding this religion, and were very much responsible for disseminating these ideas into the West, notably to academics, but not simply to academics. And in the mid-19th century, there was an enormous popular fascination with Buddhism. Edwin Arnold uh, wrote a book called The Light of Asia, mm -hmm. an epic poetic telling of the life of the Buddha. That sold more than a million copies in Britain and America, which was an extraordinary accomplishment. Yeah, reading your book and some of the really vivid descriptions you give, it struck me that the accounts that those English uh, explorers and writers had of India, and especially of its uh, religious practices of the holy waters and the ceremonies, they bear, Mick, a remarkable similarity to the writings of the English romantics themselves. I'm thinking of, of, of John John Ruskin and William Morris uh, and, you know, the, the painters Constable and Turner with their portrayals of England in this very rustic, sort of as a rustic idyll, the, the same thing they're seeing in India. 
I think that's absolutely right. I mentioned Edwin Arnold and, and, and his book, The Light of Asia. I mean, you could almost see that being illustrated by somebody like Rossetti or one of, one of the pre-Raphaelites. It is a very romantic view that they give. And I think for those people, for those pioneers, if it's not too much of an exaggeration to call them that, they did see it in, in very romantic terms. Of course, not all of them saw it in very romantic mm. terms. Some of them thought it was heresy, the worst kind of blasphemy. So you did have this conflict between the Christian view of the world and the Hindu view of the world. And that becomes very apparent in, in some writings, but not all writings. So I think it's a mistake to sort of think the British were there purely for exploitation. I think, and here I'm going very much against the grain of contemporary thinking, of course, but I think there was a lot of very positive uh, things that, that came out of that period. Yeah, but didn't they also like the idea that in India and in the East, these religions and philosophies promoted a less mechanistic, less materialist way of life because England at the time was in the, you know, latter stages of the Industrial Revolution. It, it hadn't been, uh, you know, that long since the uh, the notion of um, the dark satanic mills. They liked the fact that right. this was a culture that sort of ran counter to what was the prevailing culture and thinking in England at the time. I think that's absolutely true. And you have... In England, you have writers like Edward Carpenter, who is sort of railing against the, the materialistic society, who is railing against those dark satanic mills. There was an enormous sense of, not quite revolt, but ferment, if you like, of new thinking that occurs in the mid-late uh, Victorian age, where you have all these, these different groups and societies growing up, the Theosophical Society, Spiritualist Society, Vegetarian Society, of which Edwin Arnold uh, was co-secretary with Mohandas Gandhi, subsequently Mahatma Gandhi, who was then in London as a young barrister, trainee barrister. Lots of free thought groups. There was a, a reaction against the dominance of church, what was seen to be the, the more oppressive sides of scientific thinking, and certainly of industrialization. That contributed to particularly a figure like the Buddha, being seen as a very romantic figure, yes. Just as an aside, by the way, it <laughs> it occurred to me there's a certain Englishman alive today who would have fitted rather well into this romantic uh, love of nature and the fascination with Eastern philosophy. Uh, his name is Charles. I think he's got quite an important job in your country. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he does have quite an important job, actually. Yeah. Well, Charles III we're speaking I, I, of. I, I, of course, I'm an admirer of him and and his and his views and his philosophy. And I, you know, whatever one may think about the monarchy as an institution, mm. I think he's a good thing. But yeah. um, there you go. <laughs> Look, one of the uh, real nuggets that your book uncovers concerns the great Indian leader Mahatma Gandhi. How did he come to understand mm. his own religion of Hinduism? It's rather interesting, that isn't it? I mean, he was here in in England. He'd been in South Africa, of course, but then came to England as a barrister. And he read Edwin Arnold's poem, The Light of Asia, and Edwin Arnold also did a translation of the Bhagavad Gita. Gandhi read that, and Gandhi subsequently said this was the book that really opened his eyes to the beauties of Hinduism, mm. which some may find slightly ironic, but there is a perfect example of traffic of ideas and this traffic of enamoration, as it were, working both ways. Mm. Um, that book, The Light of Asia, was really an extraordinary book because it was read by many, many people who subsequently become 
a part of the story that I've told in here. One of them, uh, particularly a man named Alan Bennett, no relation to the uh, English playwright, playwright, of course, Alan Bennett, who became the first Englishman to become a Buddhist monk in Ceylon in 1901, Mm. which again was a, a pretty extraordinary thing, really, for a man from Victorian England to travel to the East and embrace this religion for life, as Alan Bennett did. It was an extraordinary thing. Well, the story we are talking about is uh, a new book by the British writer Mick Brown. It's called The Nirvana Express, How the Search for Enlightenment Went West. It isn't just Westerners going to India and the subcontinent to discover this enlightenment. There's a couple of, well, there's many important figures, but I want to mention a couple who came to the West from the East. First of all, who was Swami Vivekananda? Well, Vivekananda is a very, very important figure in this. Yeah, as you say, he came from India. He'd been a disciple of uh, of a great Indian guru called uh, Ramakrishna. And he came to the West in the late 19th century. He spoke at something called the World Parliament of Religions, which happened in 1893 in Chicago. It was really the first great gathering of all the world's different religions in one place. And Swami Vivekananda absolutely wowed, and that's not not too big an exaggeration to say that, he absolutely wowed the gathering and the audience there. And after his first talk, he made a number of talks, but after his first talk, he was treated to a three or four minute standing ovation. You could say he was the first emissary, really, of Hinduism to the West. And he became a very popular speaker in America. He was immediately signed up by a speaking agency and went around giving talks, came to Britain, gave talks here. So, I mean, he really planted the flag, as it were. And he was then followed by other gurus, Yogananda, who wrote the autobiography of a yogi. He came to America in the turn of the 20th century. There were a number of Indian gurus, mm. Maya Baba. Well, I wanted to ask specifically about Maya Baba. There's a pop culture connection there too. You referred to it earlier. He had a profound influence on Pete Townsend of The Who. <laughs> There's a twist though with uh, Maha Baba as a great exponent of Eastern philosophy, and it's fascinating because it's a twist that lasted 44 years of his life. What was it? (laughs) That's right. Well, he was silent. He'd taken a vow of silence, so he would only communicate via an alphabet board. He would tap out the letters on an alphabet board, and people would then have to sort of (laughs) pay very close attention to understand what he was saying. Uh, He's an extraordinary character, really, because he didn't really talk in great profundities, His message, such as it was, was a pretty universal one about love and peace and caring. But it seemed as if he had an extraordinarily magnetic presence, almost a hypnotic presence on people. He particularly cultivated a following among women of a certain age and a certain inclination, bohemian, upper-middle-class, artistic women who would follow him everywhere, whom he called his lovers. Not in a physical sense, mm. because he was had also taken a, a vow of celibacy. But there are these extraordinary accounts of, of people coming into his presence and just bursting into tears just at the, at the mere fact of being in, in his presence. Mm. Wasn't Marlena Dietrich one of those, by the way, because he had this Hollywood following? Wasn't Marlena Dietrich, and I think Tallulah Bankhead, uh, who was quite a legendary figure for her uh, for, for, for her free love, weren't they uh, followers of Mahir Baba? <laughs> I don't know if it's right to describe Tallulah Bankhead as a follower exactly, but certainly he went to Hollywood and was sort of lionized by the Hollywood community and was taken on a tour of uh, Hollywood studios uh, and met people like Dietrich and uh, Gary Cooper 
and Tallulah Bankhead. And, and there's a wonderful picture, which uh, your listeners can find on, on Pinterest or on, on the net somewhere, where he is there holding his alphabet board. And Tallulah Bankhead, who, as you say, had a very different reputation from Mayo Barber, is looking at him. And if eyes could eat, she would be <laughs> devouring Mayo Barber. Um, and he's, he's wearing a sort of rather wry smile. I'm very intrigued because he's pointing to what seems to be the letter N. So maybe he's saying no, but I mean, I don't know quite what was going on. <laughs> but certainly um, he did have a hypnotic effect on, on women. Another one who he did have a hypnotic effect on was an extraordinary woman called Mercedes Dear Costa, who was a Hollywood screenwriter. Mm-hmm. She had had affairs with uh, Marlena Dietrich, uh, Pola Negri. She famously said, I, I can have any woman from any man. And she had an affair with Greta Garbo. And of course, Mayor Barber, with his fascination with films, he described Garbo as the most spiritual of all the Hollywood stars. And he was desperate to meet Greta Garbo, but, but never did. Mm. Sadly for him, perhaps not for Greta Garbo. Mika, as we start to wind up, let's go back to uh, relatively contemporary times and a man, our listeners will um, will recall him, a man known for his giggle and his collection of Rolls Royces. Who are we talking about? We're talking about Rajneesh, the Bagwan, yes, yeah, an extraordinary figure. I finished the book with uh, Rajneesh because I think really he's the last great guru, I mean great in the sense of the impact that he had throughout the world, really, or throughout the Western world and in India. He was an extraordinary figure. Probably a lot of your listeners would know him as the sort of the 92 Rolls-Royce mm. guru. He accumulated this extraordinary collection of Rolls-Royces and also very expensive wristwatches and established a, effectively a commune in um, Oregon, which at one point had a population of five or 6,000 people and was an extraordinary place. I mean, it had its own airstrip. It had its own sewage works. It had a hotel, had a restaurant, a very, very productive agricultural business going on there. And then, of course, ended very dramatically with murder attempts on um, Oregon state officials, uh, murder plans, I should say, plots on Oregon state officials, and Bagwan having to flee the country with his Rolls Royces, uh, sorry, with his wristwatches, having to leave his Rolls Royces behind, of course. We shouldn't be surprised, though, by the Bagwan's, uh, Bagwan Sri Rajneesh's uh, collection of Rolls Royces and expensive watches, because didn't he develop his own religious philosophy to justify this? There was a, there was a line that he used to describe himself, wasn't there? What was it? He described himself as the guru for rich people. He was a very unorthodox thinker. He'd, he'd begun as a, started out as a philosophy teacher, then made this sort of transition, as it were, to becoming a sort of self-styled guru and gathered around him, first of all, Indian devotees, Indian intelligentsia, and then more and more Western devotees. It's worth saying here that the recurring theme, and we talked earlier about people looking to the West, in any sort of, I, I, I rather hesitate to call uh, Rajneesh a cult, but, uh, but I suppose I will for the sake of argument. Um, it's always intelligent people who are drawn to cults. It's not unintelligent people. Mm. It's people who are questioning, who are asking questions about the meaning of life, about what they should be doing with their lives. In many respects, Rajneesh was a brilliant, brilliant teacher. He was an iconoclast, completely irreverent, attacked sacred cows. It's an extraordinary study, really, of how somebody so intelligent and so magnetic with so many interesting things to say became completely derailed, in my view, 
by having the devotion of all these people around him. In a way, it would have been much better if, rather than collecting Rolls Royces, he'd have simply planted a tree. I think that's what I feel about Rajneesh. What a lovely way to end. It has been terrific to speak with you. Mick Brown, he's a British writer and journalist. Mick's latest book that we've been discussing is called The Nirvana Express, How the Search for Enlightenment Went West. Mick, thank you for joining us on the Religion and Ethics Report. Oh, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.